Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Have mercy on them. And be with do you remember a time when you felt a little different than everyone else? Maybe at school or at work, maybe around your family? From the time Jacob Collier was a kid, he knew he was different. Or at least he knew his relationship to music was different than the relationship the kids around him seemed to have with music. He started learning violin when he was two. He was using music software that like professional engineers use when he was in grade school. He had this fascination with music and for the human voice for as long as he can remember. And yeah, early on, he gets called a child prodigy. Then here's what happens. He posts this music he makes all by himself, you know, playing all of the instruments at a really high level on YouTube. And then these videos start to get millions of views. He gets contacted by Quincy Jones, the legendary producer. He makes this record called In My Room, all by himself in his room. He goes on to be a six-time Grammy winner and tour the world. But he really was doing that all by himself. And that sounds kind of lonely. So for his latest record, he starts hunting around for collaborators, people like John Legend and, and Chris Martin and Sean Mendez and Stormzy. That's the music you just heard at the beginning of this thing. And also he started turning his shows into big events where everyone in the crowd, people like you, tens of thousands of people were making music with him spontaneously. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who thinks about music the way that Jacob Collier does. He has really interesting ideas about collaboration, about musicality, about the importance of listening. He has a lot to say about the challenges of being this child prodigy and how it can be isolating. Jacob Collier joined me from his childhood home in London. Here's our conversation. How are you? Hey, it's so good to see you. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much for asking. You know, I'm, I'm not doing too bad, all things considered. I've been looking forward to talking to you now for since we found out we had you on the show. Superb. Oh, amazing. So... I hope you could take us through it for people who aren't as as familiar with you. Because the first record, the, the In My Room record, done uh, uh, all on your own, my guess is is that the all on your ownness of that record is what leads to you finding collaborators and wanting to kind of step outside of that. T- take me from that record by yourself to wanting to work with so many different people. Totally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm actually speaking to you right now from the very room that I learned to walk in in North London, which is the same room I made that album in my room in. Um, I, I still make a bunch of music in this room. In, in fact, it's a very important room for me. But yeah, essentially what what uh, what happened at the sort of basis of my career was I was creating very ravenously um, lots of musical experiments that I found fascinating and interesting, and I was sharing them with the world. They, they featured me doing a, a whole bunch of different kinds of musical things. So sometimes I was playing a few different instruments, sometimes I was singing and, and playing a, a variety of things. And I just I was deeply in love with and enamored by the process of, of, of that creation. And I even toured the world with a one-man show around that time. Yeah, it was about two years after My Room came out that I, I realized, you know what, this is this is all well and good and I'm loving it and I'm loving the one-man shows and I'm, I'm loving the, the process of learning. But if, if I really want to know the world, if I, if I really want to sort of get, get a taste of what life is like outside of the sort of metaphor of the room, I have to, I have to I'm you know, going to have to collaborate with some people. And I, I was so ravenous to do that at that time. And I thought, like, if I'm, if I'm going to collaborate, I may as well call up all of my favorite musicians who are roaming the earth currently and, and ask them if, they, if they'd be interested to be, to, to be a part of the project. Oh, tell me about that ravenous because there, there is a world in which, hey, this is this is working really well. I mean, Ed Sheeran's a great example of that up until recently. Right, hey, this right. is working really well by myself. I can get up on stage. I can loop. 
I can get people singing with me. Thing, things are okay. Where, where that, that ravenousness you're talking to, to is that, are you intellectually interested in it? Are you just trying to get a bunch of life experience? What's going on with you wanting to collaborate? Totally. Yeah. It's funny. I, I don't believe an artist ever really gets to decide what turns them on at any given time. I think it's like in some ways there's a myth that an artist sits, sits around and sort of decides, right, this is what's going to matter to me. And this is what's going to feel cool to do. But the truth is that the best thing you can do as, as a, I say artist, but really a human is just to be very awake to and aware of what's what's tickling you at any given time. And so I was really excited. I would say for all the reasons you mentioned and more, I was certainly sort of, you know, intellectually excited at the thought of being challenged and stretched. I was kind of, you could say spiritually excited at the thought of just kind of getting outside my own way. Um, and musically, I was, I was just so enthralled at the thought of building bridges between worlds that I half understood or, you know, was a, a great fan of, for example, the, the world of Ganawa, which is um, Moroccan street music or um, the, the incredible uh, musical world of, of Mali in Africa or Korea or um, Colombia, you know, all these, all these places I've, I've just been sort of listening so, so, so um, avidly to for so long. I sort of thought what, we, what would be cool would be to really build this, this bridge manually and, and ask some questions to some of the people I, I most respect in these, in these walks of life, you know. So, so that that would be one part of it, like you know, s- stepping into to folk music of other parts of the world that you're really interested in, uh, mm. or and collaborating with artists that you've had a long uh, love for, or you know, you, you're sort of interested in. But then there's just the the idea of, and and this is really really interesting. So this new volume, volume four, largely explores the the power of the human voice, and I want to talk about the opening piece, which is a hundred a thousand voices, which is literally a hundred thousand people all singing in harmony together. So t- to talk mm. me through this, um, a great fascination with the human voice is what I, I get from you. Oh, totally, yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing with the human voice. We all have one, right? And they're all different. And it, it feels so good to to collide them. Um, and I've I've always felt this. I think at, at first I didn't realize this was this was one of my North Stars in such a way, but it, it really is, especially looking back. You know, my first musical experiments was me layering my voice on top of itself, you know, building these towering structures of different kinds of chords and sequences and things like that. But what I didn't see coming was what has evolved to become what I think of now as the audience choir, like this idea that when I perform live, I I can stand on stage and and conduct the whole venue of audience members in three or sometimes six part harmony by um, giving them each a starting note, delegating zones by, by, by gestures, and then moving my fingers and hands up and down to kind of guide their direction without sort of saying a word about the process, just sort of um, trusting the, the in, you know, intuition of, of the room. The, the, the sound of it and the sight of it and the feeling of it like completely changed my trajectory of of life almost. I mean, it sounds like a massive thing to say, but it really seriously made me rethink what music is for, what I'm for, how my particular perspectives and gifts can can help people the most. Um, and I think there's something amazing about the idea of, you know, giving power to other people's voices over your own. And if I were to say one thing I've learned in the, in the last you know, yeah, six, six, seven years since in my room, it's, it's probably that. It's like the, the concept that, you know, when, when you think about, oh, you know, what's what's your voice? How do you find your voice as an artist? It's like, for me, I did so much in such a, such a deep solitude of finding my own voice at first. And I think that I've really, I've really found the heart of my voice in in extending my limbs, ex- extending my intentions through the voices of others, because it's, it's such a joyous occasion. Has it ever fallen apart? Oh, plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's the best. Sometimes it's the best moment. You know, you think, well, gosh, what happens if I try and do this ridiculously twisted, like harmonic progression? Like, will they will they follow along? And you know, the the, the worst thing that can happen is that you point up or down, and and there's like a 
a split decision, you know, and then some people go up a whole step and half, some people go up a half step. And if that happens and you just go back down and everyone laughs and it's cool and you carry okay, on, yeah, you know, yeah. so I think what, one of the, one of the best skills I think that you can garner as an artist over time is just to be super comfortable with not knowing what's going to happen. And I think that that helps for for, for musical reasons it helps for confidence reasons and and but it also just helps for human reasons i think it, it's just it's cool to to rock about the world knowing there's a way even if you can't see it and trusting the people around you like that just it feels like something worth doing um a hundred thousand voices on this record yeah it's true i can't believe it's true but it really is so so i recorded every single audience choir across 2022 um and 2023 and every audience choir of 2022 is on Jesse Volume 4. There's the sounds of people speaking and singing and clapping and stamping all sorts of things on that song. But I always wondered, like, what would it feel, what would it be like if I collided all these venues at once, you know, and, and heard what, like, what would that even feel like, you know, and, and the, the results are, are quite goosebump inducing. What does that um, what does that feel like to you to have all that energy come towards you? I understand it from a performing perspective. I understand it from what you're able to do with an audience, what you're able to the the the, the chord sequences you're you're able to create, the ability you have to allow audience members to sing and participate, how it removes you as a performer, it changes the dynamic of what your actual offering is to the audience. But mm. viscerally, Jacob, I, I, yeah. I I've been um, so I'll, I'll disclose something about myself here. I, I, I've had experiences like this before. So first off, as a, as a performer, I've stood on stage and had a bunch of people sing. Um, mm-hmm. And the energy I get, like almost the literal energy I get, is um, is my favorite thing in the entire world. And I've, I, I've been part, Me too. And yeah. I've been part of like really – I've gone to the north of England and I've gone to like Sheffield and gone to like folk singing nights, you know, where there's 40 or 50 people in a pub singing old songs together. And it's it's my favorite feeling in, in the entire world. I think I saw yeah. you at Glastonbury, a video of you at Glastonbury. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So when you amplify that by like how many people were out there that day, you think? 30,000 at Glastonbury. So yeah. what does that what does that energy feel like when 30,000 people are doing that to you on a, to you this yeah. one dude on a stage? Yeah, it's funny. I I feel kind of I I feel outside my body in a sense, but I also feel really in my body. It's 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 a very tingling sensation, I suppose. It's it's I feel at my biggest and at my smallest in both both in the, in the, in the best of ways. I feel I feel as big as 30,000 people, which is very big, but I also feel <laughs> Like, but because I'm not actually singing, I'm not doing anything at the moment. I'm, all I'm doing is enabling them to sing. I also feel like I'm one of a, I'm, I'm one pixel in a, in, in a, in an image. You know, it's, it's like this, this amazing feeling of just, of kind of rendering myself, um, without being in, in at the center. Though I am also at the center. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a very kind of, in, in a sense, it's quite a contradictory feeling because I, I'm riding this wave, and you know, you'd think, oh, I must feel like on top of the world and very, very powerful. But I, actually, in a sense, it's. Luckily, it's it's not all it's not all about me feeling mass massive. It's it's about almost like I, I almost dissolve in, into the wave of it all, which is which is really really special. Um, Glastonbury was was a particular experience because I really of all the gigs I've ever done, I think that's the one where I had the the, I had the least confidence it was going to work. You know, really, that was it was about 30, 31 degrees Celsius, baking baking hot sun in the middle of the day. We're outdoors, so there's no acoustic help. There's no ceiling to reflect the sound or anything. And I can't, I can't even see beyond the, the first 5,000 people because there's just so many people. It's like, you know, incomprehensible number. But I, I got to the end of one of my songs and I thought, I'm, if I don't give this a try, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sleep tonight. You know, I have to. Find me somebody to love. Find me somebody to love. Find me somebody to love. Find me somebody to Find me somebody to love. Find me through my gestures, you know, because it's, it's not, it's like, it's not easy to project that far. And then there were video screens, but on the video screens, you can't see which direction I'm pointing because the camera could be from any angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of just me. And, and what I, tr- what I trust was that the people at the front would sort of, it would somehow flow to the people behind them who maybe couldn't see over their heads or who were, having conversations or on their phone. It's just like, it's like, come on, you guys, you've got this. And I just threw the notes out there. Anybody find me? 
and and then what came back was this like roar of of enthusiasm and the other thing about Glastonbury um for anyone who's ever has ever been there will know it's like you know you've got two other bands playing close by so you know you've got like like just around the corner and like you know around the other corner so it's like we're competing against against all odds to to, to make this work but yeah the, the feeling of it working was 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 ridiculously special it, it, it really was don't you worry about a I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're hearing my conversation with Grammy winner Jacob Collier. Uh, what you're listening to right there is, is that's all Jacob. All those voices there is Jacob doing a version of Stevie Wonder's Don't You Worry About a Thing. That video has millions and millions of views on YouTube. So Jacob was still a teenager when he made that. And as impressive as that was, I, I wondered if it was a little bit isolating. Like, when did he know, even as a child, that the way he related to music was different, exceptional, but different than the way the kids around him did? Here's what he had to say. Well, I think there were definitely a number of moments when I was growing up where I felt, I don't think my mind is normal. You know, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm thinking in a normal way. And not necessarily always in a, in, in, in a positive sense. It was kind of like, I'm just not responding to this like other people are doing. And lots of kids around me, for example, wanted to be like really famous when 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 we were at school. Like, man, I just want to be famous. And I always remember thinking like, why would you want that? You know, that that's a strange thing to want. Everything in your life would probably get harder um, and you'd probably have less time to do the things that you want to do. You know, and I I don't remember being like massively averse to it, but I wasn't, it, it didn't turn me on. That was the thing. And going back to what we said before, early before, I think certain things just kind of didn't excite me. I think they excited other kids, but then other things deeply excited me that I felt like other kids maybe weren't necessarily so interested in. So like, you know, the, 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 a particular chord or sound or sequence of chords or, or a feeling or even the words, the way words felt inside my mind and the way that I, when I put them together, all that stuff, I'd, I think I always just felt like I had a very deep um, inner world, like a sort of inner understanding of how these components could be combined. And, and you know, you ask around, oh, yeah, what do you think? Isn't this crazy? And you think to say, yeah, kind of, you know, and then after a while you sort of think, well, maybe I'm, maybe it's best if I just go and build the thing that I want to hear. You know, it's fine. I, I often think about that, you know, you, you, can't, you make the music that you wish existed, you know. She knows just how to wake me. She paints me in gold and shakes me. I get a little lonely and she comes to me. She illuminates me and if she never gets close to me. What needs to be in the world? So, I had I had this kind of like real strong feeling that I should I should pursue that that world. And you know, I've been layering my voice on top of itself for a long, long time before. Don't worry about a thing. I remember I think I got my first recording software when I was seven. I got Cubase, and then when I was eleven. I moved over to Logic and I got an SM58 microphone and it was really fun. And I would go and learn songs at school and bring them back home. And it's funny, I think, I mean, I think everyone has weird twists about the way that they think and, and nothing feels odd or strange until someone points it out to you and says, Hey man, that, what the hell is that? You know, what are you doing there? Or I don't think that's a good idea. You know, there was also a lot of that, but um, you know, I'm, I feel genuinely lucky that I, so it came up in a in a space in in my home environment. I was raised by a single mother with my two little sisters, and there was just this constant feeling that I could go anywhere or be anything or change shape and just just figure out who I was. And I think in in the changing of my shape, I always had this like extreme core anchorage in my kind of belief that my inner world mattered. And for that, I, again, I, I can take no credit. I, I have to give credit there to my, to my mom really. Um, and and I think I'm I'm just grateful that I was able to tune into it for for long enough as a kid for it to sink its roots so deeply into me that I couldn't not make music when I was older. I, I really appreciate you saying that, and I think what you said there is something that uh, um, we don't talk about enough. Is that I've, I in my life, and and if you listen to this show, you'll know that sometimes you'll talk to people who have certain um, exceptionalities around music and around art from a very very young age, um, and it, it presents itself like a very very good thing. And co- of course, it is. You know, you can you're great at a party, uh, you're fun in a choir, right. you're you know you can you can play anything you want, and you get a lot of attention. Also, sometimes the things that make you exceptional, one thing can 
can be frustrating or they can make you feel isolated or they can make you, make you feel alone. Uh, but you said something there. You were like, hey, the other kids in my class wanted to be famous. And you were thinking to yourself, geez, that's some, not something I want. Uh, you don't get a lot of time for yourself. You don't get a lot of time to do the things you do. I'm just making this art. So when you the millions and millions, millions of views come in and you're getting all this attention and Jacob, you, you become like internet famous, which is very new and very, uh, very overwhelming. Hmm. How was that? Well, I, I'm grateful for a, a number of things, but one of them is, I think is that I never had like a, I never had like a really accelerated moment of, of increase of my, of my fandom. It was always kind of, it was always kind of a, 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 a steady curve, you know? Um, there were definitely moments where things like kicked up a notch, like that video of don't worry about a thing that was, that was one of them. And, when I was nominated for album of the year at the Grammys, that was another where so people were like, hang on a minute, this is a thing, you know, but <laughs> you know, there, there, there are all these, all these moments that, that come and go in your life. And I, I think I'm, I'm glad that it didn't happen in a flash, you know, cause I see, you see these people on the internet and they, they one, one morning they wake up and then make a video and post it. And then the next morning they wake up and they, they, they've got 20 million views. And, and that, that I, I just can't think of a single person in this world who would be cool with that. Like and and would find that straightforward because that that comes fraught with problems. I mean, some people make amazing things out of those kinds of opportunities, but it's hard. So, you know, I I, I look at my the, the decade I've just had, um, and I'm I'm grateful for yeah for for the kind of the, the steadiness of my conviction in a sense, and not having bent into different directions. I mean, there were lots of people in the early days who sort of said, right, you know, we're going to sign you to a label and we're going to give you a bunch of um, you, you know money and we're going to do X Y Z and and get, that get you to write yeah, some pop songs or try to get you to make something really. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and do you know what? It's it's important to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with no. writing pop songs, or money, or, any, or record labels, or any of that stuff. But it wasn't for me at that time. And so I was I was able to say, do you know what? I don't really want to do that. I'm actually I'm just going to make this album by myself. And I'm so glad I did that because the, the amount I learned from executing something like that by myself was just so much more colossal than I would have learned had I jump through all the hoops. And it's so funny now in, in the music industry, looking around, um, you know, there are so many people who along the way said to me, you know, Jacob, you just can't do things like this. It doesn't, that doesn't work. Or, you know, pe people won't listen to the music or, uh, you know, you're going to lose streamers and listeners and all, all that kind of stuff. And in, in, in a funny kind of a way, I, I feel like I operated with a, a, a such a strong North star creatively that I almost forgot about the, the, the other stuff. And I always had the sense that if I just built trust with the people who, did understand the things I was kind of trying to make. Um, and obviously that's that's partly my audience, but it's also, you know, my collaborators and other artists in the community and my friends and my family, those relationships at the end of your life, you know, you just have those that nothing else was ever real except for those relationships you've built and, and taken care of. So for me, I, I've always felt really strongly about it's literally just that. And if you just do that bit right and you say, here I am, I'm just Jacob. And Whatever you think of that, it's 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 the best I can be. It's the biggest I can be. Is that, and if I show up for that, then I'm doing the best I can. It's kind of proven itself to not only bring me a lot of joy, but it's also resulted in I think a, an amount of trust uh, within my with, within my audience around the world, which I, I'm so grateful for. And it's that kind of trust I think that I can extend in, in, into into an audience choir in a sense. It's kind of like you know I've got you, and I know you've got me. Let's just have fun together and see where it goes. by Jacob Collier. Before that, the first part of my conversation with Jacob. More with him after the break, including how Quincy Jones became his mentor, what it was like to perform with Joni Mitchell at the Grammys. Plus, you'll hear Emily Austin read a poem from her new collection called Gay Girl Prayers. It's after this on Q.
Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the former child prodigy, now I guess adult prodigy, Jacob Collier. Jacob Collier is a six-time Grammy winner, really respected for his technical ability, meaning for like his tuning, his ability to harmonize, play a lot of instruments very well. At, at one point in this conversation, we have a conversation about like technique, how being really good at music versus heart, having a lot of soul in your music. And he, he really surprised me with his answer on that. But Jacob got to start by posting YouTube videos of himself online doing Stevie Wonder songs mainly, right? And he'd play all of the instruments himself, you know, drums, guitar, piano, upright bass, kind of everything. And then he'd layer like 43 versions of his voice on top of it. I mean, just take a listen. Jacob Collier, when he was 18, doing a version of uh, Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder. So yeah, those videos go on to make you know millions and millions of views, make a lot of buzz all around the world. The videos end up making it to Quincy Jones, the legendary producer behind, like, I don't know, Thriller by Michael Jackson. And it started a relationship that would become really important for Jacob when he was a kid. That's where our conversation picks up. I also know that Quincy Jones is really important in this. Like, I know Massively, that Qu- yeah. Quincy Jones, the legendary uh, uh, record producer. It, it, the story is, does he call you? Like, he sees the video and calls you? Is that it? Yeah. Well, so he he found his way to, don't worry about a thing, or I should say, don't worry about a thing, found his way to to to, to the, the big Q. And um, yeah, he, he sent me an email, actually. He sent me an email saying, hey, I'm Quincy. And um, like what are those chords you're, you're playing? What are those chords you're singing in that song of yours? And I, and I was just so excited. I thought that's cr- that's crazy to me. You know, here's a man who's who's taught me and everyone I know music basically from all the records he's made, from all the things that he stood for, all the ground he's broken in in the industry. It's just been so extraordinary to to be inspired by him for this all the time. And here he is in my inbox, you know, sliding into my DMs as it were, before DMs. This is, um, and I and I was just so kind of thrilled that the world sort of bent around in this great big bendy spoon to meet to put me and Quincy together um that friendship ended up being well it's 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 it still remains but it ended up being really important for me especially at the beginning with regard to you know how I thought about the music industry and how to how to how to navigate it you know you've got a man there who is absolutely fearless to try new stuff to um differentiate himself from from others and and to to go places that no one else had ever been before but always to do it with like a sense of humanity and you know he's full of crazy stories it's like this one time i was hanging out with picasso or stravinsky or (laughs) you know charlie parker and it's just like holy crap you know you were you were there at that time you were meeting these people you were hanging just just absolutely amazing so you know yeah in the early days quincy quincy said you know i'd love to i'd love to to manage you and his team wanted to manage me and i actually i said no at first i said you know i'd I just want to do things my own way, but can we just be friends? Uh, which is kind of like, like Quincy still makes fun of me for it now. It's just like, can we just be friends? But it's what I said. And and it's what happened for about a year and a half. And then as in my room came to life, I ended up realizing actually, you know, that Quincy and his, his really talented bunch of people working around him could indeed help me. So in the end, you know, that ended up, that ended up happening. But I really deeply appreciate um, and always have done Quincy's kind of openness to me being on my own terms. And just being like, you know what? Let Jacob do what he wants, because that's the best thing for Jacob. And you know, not not everybody's built from that stuff, but Quincy certainly is. Um, so the relationship with Quincy Jones um, is, is is helps you navigate the music industry as things. You're right, ramp up really quickly. You, you, like you mentioned earlier, you you end up getting nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year, which has to be pretty overwhelming. That's a, that's a pretty wild thing to happen. Um, and then, if you're a Canadian, you would have seen Jacob the other night. I mentioned this playing on the Grammys with uh, Joni Mitchell as she does her first ever um, Grammy Grammy performance. Tell me a story about that. Tell, tell me, give, give me something. It's Joni Mitchell. So, okay. So first thing to say is 
as I'm sure many of you listening would agree, Joni is is one of the founding pillars of music. Uh, she taught me so many things growing up about honesty and transparency and fearlessness and and sound worlds and chords and lyrics, everything. She's just one of the absolute goats, you know. And um, so I first met Joni back in 2021 when she was really just just recovering from the brain aneurysm, which completely took away her ability to speak, her ability to walk. Um, she, you know, in, in, in her own words, she's kind of back from the dead, you know. Um, and I went to her extraordinarily beautiful house back then to play some songs with her. That's actually also the day that I met Brandy Carlisle. Um, and Brandy said, you know, Joni would love to meet you and love to jam with you. And why don't you come along and hang? So I came along to hang. I was totally overwhelmed, mind blown. You know, every wall in that house is hand painted by Joni. And there's all these extraordinary portraits of her friends. And obviously her friends are like Charles Mingus and Miles Davis and all these people. And they're all around, all around the house. And, and Joni's sitting there in this, in this chair. And uh, back, back then she, she really wasn't communicating too much. And she certainly wasn't participating musically. She was mostly just listening and occasionally would whisper a line and everyone would, would hush and, and, and think, gosh, this is extraordinary. And fast forward, you know, three years, I went to her house, what it was about two weeks ago now, I suppose, to rehearse for the Grammys when I'd learned that I was doing it. Um, and uh, Joni's sitting there, sparkling you know her little her little gray eyes just shining sparkling eyes she's she was totally there totally present ears wide open eyes wide open full of mischief you know it's a whole different whole different vibe from when i first encountered her and you know we yeah, we, we play both sides now in c major rose and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air. And, and it's the best C major I've ever been in, I think, was was on that on that Grammy stage, you know. And yeah, the whole first verse I got to just play, it was just me and Joni. I got to play in C for a little while, and Joni sang, you know, rose and flows of angel hair, which is really low for for her voice, but you know, she she's super comfy down there these days. And you know, but every time we, we played both sides in rehearsal, it came out different from her because she's such a natural rephraser, improviser. She she thinks of herself as a as a jazzer. You know, she's super influenced by all, all of those peers of hers from back in the day, you know, the, the Herbie and, and Miles and Mingus, all, all those amazing people, Jacko too. And so she would she she finds a different space, a different gap to enter into the phrase. And she'll wait slightly longer than she did before to to sing, you know. And feather canyons everywhere. And you're going and like, hold on, hold on, okay, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. So, so, so for me, it was it was a total total trip. Not not just because I was, you know, like ears wide open and, and making sure I was supporting her, but just because I didn't know what she was going to do. And I get extremely fed by that. I, I love that feeling of just following along, and I think she also loves that feeling. So we had a really special kind of musical handshake that was that was tactile on the, on, on that stage for me. I've looked at clouds. Now, from up and down, and still somehow, it's cloud illusions that I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Let's just use both sides now as an example for what I'm about to, mm, to ask you about, because mm. it's something I've been really curious about, about you and, and about sort of a new generation of musicians for a really, really long time coming from folk music, coming as I do from folk music. So there would be friends, there would be people you would talk to who would say, hey, do you like Both Sides Now by, by Joni Mitchell? And they would say things like, oh, I love Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell. I love that it starts on a one chord, one, 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 one. One 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 one. You know, and then I it, I love the chord sequence here. I love her. Um, I lo- I love her use of leading tones. I mm. love her use of the scale. I love her use of the flat seven. And you would you would find yourself sometimes going like, sure, but the song is a beautiful song about seeing life in a different way. There's I'm I'm hearing so much heart from 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 Joni. Yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with people over the past little while about whether or not, and I will say I'm excluding you from this, but but whether or not a lot of musicians get caught up in the technical aspects or the harmonic aspects or the or the musical aspects of the music that they're listening to, yeah. and there's not as much of a focus on on heart. 
I've had conversations with people who say like, oh, the thing I want to listen to is a field recording of a guy out in the middle of a field uh, who is a shepherd singing songs to his sheep. He's flat, but there's there's heart heart there. As someone who is so incredibly technically adept, you can kind of do anything and you can kind of express any, you can kind of tell me exactly what you're doing technically as you're doing it. What's your relationship like with heart and, and technique? Yeah, it's a fun, fabulous question and phrased brilliantly. Um, well, I think, you know, it's it's funny. I think technicality has gotten, as you mentioned, some bad press over the years at being like the opposite of heart, which to me kind of blows my mind. It's like, that's not how it works at all in my mind. Um, though I do think there is such a thing as being distracting. Um, and I also think there's such a thing as your ego getting too much involved and wanting to prove something. You can want to prove something by playing nothing or you can want to prove something by playing everything. And both sides of that, not to use the pun, but you know, both 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 sides of that I think can be unhelpful. Um, I mean, the, the fundamental thing with music is, you know, you can literally do whatever you want. You know, whatever feels right to you is probably the right thing for you to be doing and you should just do that. But I think over, over the years, you know, following along with what excites me, um, different 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 sorts of axes reveal themselves as thrilling to me at different times. So, you know, ten years ago, for example, I think I was I was on the edge of my seat with chords. You know, I had just figured out that you could microtonally modulate um, in good taste. Like it was it was new to me the idea of doing that. You know, you can modulate to the key of G half sharp major in a very careful, um, thoughtful, you could say technical way, but it, it smashes you in the heart. You know, in in the process of doing that. Um, Nowadays, I, I I feel like I'm I'm less I, I live less on that particular precipice and more on 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 other precipices. I think I'm right now totally dazzled by the potential of what's possible from a stage and what's possible with an audience and and in, and in collaboration. I mean, it's it sounds on the nose in a sense to say it, but I think my my fascinations have evolved to move. But I don't think of them as on the axis of complex to simple, but but, but uh, uh, per se, I think of them as as on a, a a total variety of different different sorts of depths and distances and things to measure um you know you can you can create a very to my era a very benign um and you, you could even say dull piece of music uh, with a lot of information in it that's that's i've heard that before and uh, equally you can create a music a piece of music that's ex extremely compelling with with one or two things going on and nothing changes i, I think the idea of um you, you could say heart or, or depth of experience or sort of um, emotional dimension i think that is that's a, it's a very important conversation, but a very separate conversation from, you know, the sort of density of ideas that are involved. Um, and I, I would suggest, like, if anyone wants to sort of uh, stretch their ears and mind about what's possible with those axes and how those axes affect the heart, you have to push yourself to the edge, right up to the edge of that of your seat. You have to try everything, otherwise, you never know. I, I, you, you could not have made me more delighted with that answer that, that's such be so <laughs> oh, that's good. so so you're beautifully put and it made me um it made me maybe challenge some of my own biases and it made me i mean people listening to this uh, gave him a great idea into sort of like there there is no uh, there's a lot of gray area when it comes to music there is no sort of black and white of of heart heart versus technique jacob lovely to meet you thanks so much for the time you too thanks ever so much you tell me you're broken Tell me it's over now You say you're done hoping You tell me all the light's gone out Well maybe you're lost and Maybe you're far from home If you only keep walking You never will walk alone Cause when I'm with you There's nothing that I wouldn't do Jacob Collier, Stormzy, and Pickering, Ontario's own Sean Mendes with Witness Me. Before that, my conversation with Jacob Collier. He's heading out on tour this spring. For information on that, head to jacobcollier.com. And his new album, Jesse, is out everywhere today. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. How often do you read, like, a holy book? like the Talmud or the Quran or the Bible or something like that. Depending on who you are, you can read it really differently at various stages of your life. Like you'll read it one way when you're a kid and it's being read to you. You'll read it another way, sort of middle-aged, and another way, you know, when you're, when you're getting older. Emily Austin is a Canadian novelist and poet. She's from St. Thomas, Ontario. And growing up, she attended Catholic school. She served on the altar, and her Catholic faith was pretty important to her. 
But as she got older and studied religion in university, Emily, like a lot of people, started questioning her beliefs and started to think about how parts of the Bible made her feel as a woman and as a queer person. Emily's new collection of poetry is called Gay Girl Prayers, and it aims to uh, reclaim religious text, you know, through a queer and, and feminist lens, an alternate version of prayers, an alternate version of biblical passages. It's a really, really interesting project. Emily Austin joined me from Ottawa, Ontario, a couple of weeks ago to tell you more about it and to read for you a poem from that collection. Emily, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Tom. I really appreciate it. Oh, come on. I'm so excited about it. And also, like, as, a, as someone else raised going to mass every Sunday. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. About I, saw, I saw that on your Wikipedia page. That's a statement on your Wikipedia page. I, you know what? You know, I didn't write that. It's, it's actually related to the topic. I, we had Bono on and he right. asked me about my relationship with faith. And I talked about how I grew up with Catholicism and, you know, because of the, you know, the incredible traumas and, and awfulness and abuse that happened, especially in Newfoundland and in the church and involving members of the church, you know, I stepped away. I, I didn't know it would end up on Wikipedia, though, Emily, I got to tell you. <laughs> it's the last line on your page. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a similar story with you, hey? Like, I think I'm, I'm on to something that you were raised with Catholicism and then something kind of changes. Yeah, yeah. So I was raised Catholic and Catholicism feels very nostalgic for me. You know, I met my best childhood friends on the floor of a Catholic church. We were in choir together and I associate the smell of incense with my grandma and, you know, the Catholic church was the backdrop of a lot of my childhood memories, but somewhat similar to, to you, it sounds like I, as I got older in my adolescence, I started to question certain aspects of it, particularly, you know, around sexual abuse scandals, but also around um, how women and, and uh, LGBTQIA plus people are treated in the Catholic church uh, and started to question it a bit. And I went to I went to university. I was an English major, but I my minor was in religious studies, and all of my elective classes were in religious studies because I was very interested in it. And uh, yeah, it made me start to question certain things I had been taught as a kid. What I find interesting about that is that you didn't make a clean break and just never return to it ever again. Like like you said, you you begin to question it. You start studying it in university. And then now you're revisiting it through your work, you know? Yeah, it was. Uh, I've I've always found it really interesting. I took uh, after university, I sort of lost a lot of my interest in it. But then I started to write a novel. It's my my first novel. It's titled "Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead," and it's about an atheist lesbian woman who stumbles into a job at a Catholic church. And as part of writing that book, I was looking over my old assignments, and I was looking at the Bible again, and I was thinking about Catholic church. And around that same time, my grandma died and I hadn't gone to church in a long time, but I went to church for her funeral and was sort of in, and it was the same church I'd grown up in. So I was sort of in this mental space where I was starting to, you know, I had gone through a lot of questioning and I had really assessed a lot of what I had learned, but then there had been this break. And uh, when I went back, I felt like I was looking at things with, with a fresh perspective and uh, sort of felt like an outsider looking in. And that's when I started to to write these poems. One of the poems that stuck out to me is your reimagining of something from the Old Testament, um, Leviticus 20.13. It's one of those passages that comes up a lot, I think, both when you grow up in Christianity and you begin to discover Bible verses that don't feel very comfortable to you. And then also when you start, like, you know, hearing people who condemn homosexuality, people who contain queer people, this passage often comes up because it's the one, if you're listening to this, it's the one that says something along the lines, if, if a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman, they have both committed an abomination and they must be put to death. You know, it, it, it comes up a lot. Um, do you have your version there to, to read me? I do, yeah. I can read that. So this is titled Leviticus 2013. Those who lie with men as men lie with a woman inherit heaven. Take off the grave clothes. Nothing abominable is attractive. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw. I love that so much. Tell me a little bit about writing that and where that came from. Yeah, like you were saying, that is a really popularly quoted Bible passage about homosexuality specifically. And I remember, you know, one of my best friends growing up is a gay man. And I remember, and we were raised Catholic. And I remember before realizing that I was queer, 
part of my sort of deconstruction was was realizing that he was. This was someone I'd grown up with my whole life. And, you know, we'd been raised in this Catholic church. It was who I met on the floor of the Catholic church. Actually, we were in choir together. And I remember reflecting on a lot of passages, especially this one, and thinking that feels so not right. And part of what I was thinking about in writing in writing this is when I came back and was looking at the Bible with those fresh eyes after that sort of period away, I realized that the Bible can be really uplifting and heartening to a certain audience. And for me, it had always felt really repressive and frightening. And I thought specifically about that friend, but also about myself and the people who I know. And I thought about how like heterosexual marriage, for example, is treated as this holy, sacred thing and how that must be sort of nice. You know, it must be nice to feel like when you love someone, which really is a really sweet, pure thing. Um, it must be nice for that to be sort of affirmed by this feeling of it being sacred. And that passage in particular, I was trying to provide that sort of feeling for people who don't get to feel that way when they read the Bible or when they're a member of the Catholic Church and they're gay. What, what was your relationship with the Bible grown up? Um, I was so I was raised Catholic. My family was Catholic. My um, I went to Catholic school. I was in uh, children's choir, and I remember really strongly believing it. And even now, you know, I have a complicated relationship with it because there are certain aspects, especially when you're raised in it. I'm sure you, maybe you relate to that too, where there are certain, like the Christmas story, for example, feels very nostalgic and sort of special, and it's it's kind of tainted by passages like Leviticus 2013. That sort of um, you know, there's this feeling of uh, like feeling like you're an abomination. Yeah. Um, reading something that's supposed to make you feel like you're special or important or, you know, part of the universe in some special way. So like, so is writing this, not to put too much of an intention behind your art here, but is this about writing sort of a better version of the Bible or a version of the Bible that would have been better for you growing up? You know, originally when I started writing it, I, I didn't have any intention of sharing it. And I was writing it sort of as a writing exercise to write my novel. And it felt sort of cathartic. And there were certain passages in particular I was thinking about, and Catholic prayers too. I was thinking about Hail Mary, Hail Mary. And I was thinking about how we talk about the Virgin Mary and how strange it would be to talk about, you know, the Virgin John. Uh, it would just, it it stands out as being so odd when you consider switching gender, for example. So originally I started writing it just for my own sort of catharsis. But um, then my novel came out and I got a, a large number of messages from young queer people, especially, and a large number of messages from queer people who had religious trauma. And I had this book of poems that I had written for myself as a sort of, you know, just writing exercise, my own personal sort of therapy. And at, after receiving those messages, I started to think, um, maybe I should share this with, with those people too. We're, we're going to listen to your poem right now. You're going to read Crack, Crack. Tell me um, a little bit about, uh, about this poem. So this is the first poem in the book, and it's uh, sort of meant to show that sort of headspace, that sort of uh, deconstruction headspace. There's a line in it. Um, there are virgins in the white clouds waiting for dead men. If heaven is hell for girls then heaven is hell. I was really struck by that line. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, I think so. A big part of what sort of compelled me to write this is recognizing that I wasn't the target audience of the Bible when I was younger. And there's so many stories and uh, so much in Catholicism and in religion in general that isn't targeted to women and or to LGBTQIA plus people. And when you are, when you have your perception sort of changed over time, and you're able to look at um, at that with fresh eyes, you realize things like that. Like it isn't when when you hear about heaven um, being a space where where virgins are, for example, it doesn't. That isn't heaven for girls. Uh, there is this sort of exclusionary language around religion and Catholicism that makes it very obvious when you're removed from it that it wasn't meant for you. You're going to read the poem right now. Would you mind telling us who you are and introducing it? 
Yeah, so this is, um, I'm Emily Austin, and this poem is Crack, Crack. Strange women, darkness remains dark until there is light. So smoke a cigarette and listen to the beast roar. Shall we resurrect strange women? Rise like steam, like birds from a subway station. Defy the convention of the proverbs, write with our fingers, I am. Resurrect the spirit, fly into the ember, caw a song in the air like a crow. I am who I am. She is who she is. You are who you are. Can you hear me? Are you listening? I am sweltering. Rainbows arched in the sky, ink in our skin, I am. Naked under gold and pearls a volcano erupts. Take the pew. She is at the pulpit, she is. Take the white clouds into white rooms, she is at the front now. Fire in her belly, fruit on her chin. There are words in her mouth, in her gut with the apple. We listen to the crack of fire, burning bushes, crack, listen. There are virgins in the white clouds waiting for dead men, crack. If heaven is hell for girls, crack, then heaven is hell. Keep your soul insurance in the fountain, crack. There is a shadow poisoning the well. Wet your hair with drops of the night, crack, crack. Praise the monsters. Meet me where the fire never goes out. There's Emily Austin reading her poem, Crack, Crack, from her new collection, Gay Girl Prayers. Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Austin's new collection of poetry, Gay Girl Prayers, comes out on March 1st. Emily also has a new novel out called Interesting Facts About Space. Emily, join me from Ottawa, Ontario. And that is it for the show this week. Q is produced by Matt Amha, Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Lise Hossein, Vanessa Nigro, Corinne Najowin, Mitch Pollock, and Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Eva Zhu, Shuli Grossman-Gray, and March Mercanti. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan. Our director is Matt or Matthew Murphy. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer is Beza Seifa. Anne McKeegan is our executive producer, and my name is Tom Power. I'm the host of the show. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, Q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that, or you can find me on Instagram I'm at Tom Joe Power. The show is at CBCQ on Instagram and on TikTok. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.